Work, wealth, wisdom. This is DC Entrepreneur. We're sharing stories, ideas, and lessons from startups and businesses in the pursuit of innovation. And we're helping build a community of problem solvers and thought leaders in the Washington area. Now, here's your host, George Mocharco. This is George Macharco, host of the DC Entrepreneur radio show and podcast, coming to you from the studio here at WERA 96.7 FM. My guest today is Martin Ditto. Martin is the president and CEO of Ditto Residential. They're an urban design and development company founded in 2008 that helps conceptualize and create world-class residences. Thanks for being here. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about your company. So Ditto builds these luxury residences around the Washington, D.C. area that uh, have this design aesthetic that are very unique compared to the rest of the properties here. Can you talk to me about the aesthetic that you're going for with Ditto Residential? Yeah, when I first started, I was just always trying to be a little bit different than kind of the standard, the norm of what people were delivering in the market. And then as we grew and worked with uh, amazing architects, really came to something more on the modern side, but this idea that what can we... If we're smart about material usage, if we're smart about design, what can we do? Like, can we deliver what is essentially a custom home for a competitive price in the market? And so, uh, I mean, what was kind of the benchmark or standard that you saw that needed to be in the DC market? Like, where did you get design inspiration? It's been it's been a evolution of the company. Uh, I started off just wanting to have my products be better than my competitive set. As we grew, it was more like, no, we have this design standard that we want to meet. And it's basically less set by being better than our competition and more set by within the confines of, of our ability to build this and the cost of construction and our sales prices, et cetera. These, these unit economics, how nice of a place can we build? And can you talk to me about the architect that you work with and how they've helped influence kind of the, the style and design of your places? Yeah, architects, the best architects in the world could have done anything with their lives, I mean, any, anything they wanted to do. I mean, these are very difficult jobs because of the regulatory requirements. And that, that's, I mean, so you can just build a shit box, you know, and not really worry about it, the way it looks. But if you want to add, add all, to all of the regulatory requirements, the good design and good layout and aesthetics, it's a, it's a, it's a special person who can do that. So now you've got 60 projects in your portfolio, which till around 330,000 square feet with about 240 units in the D.C. area. Now, I first started seeing your homes in the Shaw U Street area. I think that's the first time I saw a Ditto property. Can you just kind of walk me through some of the real estate concepts that you've created and uh, talk to me about which ones are still in the pipeline and why you've chosen those specific neighborhoods to be located at? Sure. From a product perspective, it was, you know, we want to produce the finest uh, modern housing in, in Washington, the finest housing in Washington. And that that's kind of how we approach that. On the on the On the Oslo side, it was really – all about innovation. I mean, Ditto as a firm is encapsulated in, in these these very basic uh, ideas around innovation and creative problem solving and design. And so, we're not happy just doing the exact same thing, you know, the same projects uh, in the same neighborhoods. We we want to be morphing. We want to be building a similar product, but just improving on that product on every version that we come out with. So now you're involved with something called wellness real estate. Now, now this is a new concept, at least to me. But it's also a concept that's estimated to be part of a $134 billion market. 
So the wellness industry is 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 global now, and it's massive. Even in, in real estate, it's massive, but it's massive in almost any industry. I mean, you see it from everything from clothing to food to hotels and real estate and residential, um, et cetera. Even in the suburban context, I mean, we have Serenby in Atlanta. There's a wellness-based real estate concept for people to live and uh, sometimes work, but being community with like-minded people, people who who share the same values around around. But some of those values are not don't, aren't just exclusive. Values around diversity, values around diversity of thought, diversity of income, diversity of age groups, and this is something that, left to its own devices, the capitalist uh, development world would would end up segregating everyone into these very tight silos. I mean, you'd have the youngest people living in the smallest units, paying the most money, closest to the bars, and you'd have the elderly without without any without any subsidy would be living in the suburbs away from their families not able to get not able to walk to what they want to go to and so the able bodied people are closest and most convenient and the less able bodied people are and so we we have a we have a disconnect between what the needs of the community are and what the economics of of uh, of our capital system provide that's interesting because you mentioned designing for different people. It, it sounds like you've had design thinking or user experience, which are typically uh, used in technology development as a thought process to your design. Is that right? That's always been something I've done kind of because of my economic training and how, you know, how, I, how I came up, how my mind works, right? That's, that is how I – I didn't even know about design thinking. And then this idea that I think conceptually and that's design thinking and that's how you solve problems was like, yeah, that's cool. I, I'm on board with that. So um, what's exciting now is that we, so we've been doing this internally is how we come up with these various products. And we have had plans over the past year to continue to develop these products, to be able to offer them, to really be in collaboration with people, right? So we could collaborate with landowners. We can collaborate with even other developers by building these brands. I mean, that's what we're good at. We can create a product that's higher, that's higher in value because of the sticks and bricks and the actual product on site, plus the brand, and plus all of the marketing and and the culture and belief set around that. So paint me a picture of what one of the properties looks like. Talk to me about what the experience is whenever you walk into a, a residential property. I think uh, let's talk about the for sale side and the condo side separately. We'll talk about – so on the for sale side, it really comes down to design. Mm-hmm. I mean the, the cost of the finishes, the cost of, of the lighting package, all of these things are subordinate to who your master designer is. And then how that master design gets pulled through through the execution of the project, and so I think that design. I mean, you know, we think about design thinking. I mean, all of the thinking that goes into a project before you actually get on site and start building is more important than what happens on site. And so our goal is to be able to really continue to refine, 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 and define these various products, so that we can then deliver those to the market in various circumstances. Let's talk about the wellness uh, real estate a little bit more here because um, I think you're also kind of pioneering part of this trend, at least in our area. What cities and countries are you seeing this and kind of where are your influences when it comes to wellness and real estate? So my influence when it comes to wellness is all personal. Uh, I, I, um, there was a time in my life when I was really uh, in psychosomatic trauma from, from work and I was experiencing extreme stress and lack of sleep and like indigestion, all kinds of things because of the stress I was feeling in a job. And it was then that I decided, you know, I'm not, this is not for me. Actually, I didn't decide that. I walked in my boss's office one morning and he said, uh, you're either going to quit or I'm going to fire you. Really? And, yeah. Was, I, I was clearly not happy. Um, I was doing okay. a good job by measure of, you know, the, the perfunctory, you know, responsibilities. Sure. But, but I wasn't happy and it wasn't the right place for me. Was this when you were at Bazudo? Uh, it was post Bazudo. It was okay. when I was at Monument. Yeah. 
but obviously you had a lot of takeaways from you know working in uh, commercial properties, right? Oh my God! I mean, that's what was so interesting. I actually had uh, I had uh, a meeting yesterday with uh, my former HR person who's been a friend of mine for a long time. And she remembers when I left Bazudo. This is just, she just told me this yesterday. I didn't even remember this. She said that when I left, I said, you know, I want to see how everyone else does it. You know, Tom Bazudo is such a nice guy. This is such a, a clean, you know, kind of suburban company. You know, I want to see how it's done in the city. And I didn't really remember that. I probably didn't give myself credit for that because I used to think that I had made a mistake leaving Bazudo. This is actually a very high-quality company that really does embody a lot of my own values. But uh, it, was, it was fun to hear from Kathy tell me yesterday that when I was leaving, I actually was more aware of why I was leaving and kind of what I might be leaving for. And so do you feel like um, there was something that kind of pushed you into entrepreneurship whenever you were experiencing that? Yeah, I would say I got pushed into entrepreneurship because I was extremely unhappy. If I had been at a company that where I had the values of, of, of my team members and had been growing personally and, and you know, and and emotionally and psychologically, if I've been growing in those ways, I don't think I would ever leave. But you got to know, like, there are all kinds of people like that in the world. You look at consulting firms, and there are so many talented people. And because of the cushy job and the pay and the benefits and the long-term kind of trajectory towards partnership and all that other stuff, they don't leave. So it almost always, I mean, there are some people who get into entrepreneurship because they want to make money. And that's their only motivating factor. That is not my only motivating factor. And so those people got pushed somehow. They, they left the corporate world because the corporate world wasn't exactly aligned with who they were. Interesting. So, yeah, I, I think the golden handcuffs are something a lot of people face whenever they're in those work situations where they've got it good, but they don't feel like they have the freedom or autonomy to think like an entrepreneur. So can you tell me about how you developed your entrepreneurial mindset, like where that came from? Did, did you have any kind of history of, of being a salesperson or an entrepreneur as a kid, or is it something you just stepped into after you left these roles? I was a really good salesperson as a kid. Okay. I, uh, we sold wrapping paper to raise money for my school, uh-huh. and we sold something else uh, as a kid. And I, I remember that I each year I would like be one of, if not the top, salesperson in the school and get like a bike, and I, it was awesome. But um, no, I mean I've been I've been doing I've been interested not in sales but interested in business and talking to people. I just love meeting people. I love digging into them and and knowing what there is to know about them that I'm interested in. And so uh, I did have another in high school. I had a business doing pressure washing. Okay. I bought a truck an F one fifty with one hundred sixty thousand miles on it, and just drove around with a Honda you know powered pressure washer in the back and and you know tried to make a go of it. But it was interesting. I should have known then. That like that that I would not be driven only by by my money because what I, I I always wanted to change the business and grow the business and morph it and make it more complex and make it more of a problem solving capacity. Um, so did that nothing no other businesses until I got to uh, to DC and I, I don't actually I don't know how to define entrepreneurialism. Like I I think that if you say an entrepreneur is someone who starts a business, then you know that's I actually would like for it to be a bit of a higher calling, more more in the kind of the innovation sector. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, you know, someone who owns a business and just manages a business is that's a totally respectable set of, of skills. And that's I need I need those people around me, those those implementers. Right. But uh, but but I think that entrepreneurship is something that it's a it's an openness to change. Right. A willingness to face your fears and a desire to do something different and try to improve on, you know, what's what's the current 
status quo. Right. I mean, that's the focus of this show, too, is that, you know, the guests that I have on here aren't people that are doing multi-level marketing. They're not people that are doing small businesses that are franchises. These are people that have an original concept that have, you know, an idea and vision that they're really carrying out that doesn't exist out there. So can you just tell me about how you've built the brand of Ditto and, you know, how that's kind of an extension of the company? When we started talking about brand, um, it was interesting. It, we started spending money on uh, on bigger, you know, nicer signage. No one, no, no one building houses was, was putting signage up. We started doing cool, like black, like simple black, you know, fences around their properties, and and then started spending money on website. I mean, our website, our first website, was you know, looking back, it's, it was you know, it's very different than what was what was put out there today. But I, I was proud of it at the time. But you know, even money on on website signage, and then just how we talked about things, how we marketed things, doing little little vignettes in each in each room to kind of tell you who it was. And I'll tell you that that my friends, like my close friends, I can think of one friend in particular who's like, he came to me and said, you know, what makes you think that people care about who built the house when they buy it? Hmm. And it's interesting. He's right and he's wrong. Okay. On the one hand, he's right from a market perspective. No one had proven that. By having the finest home, you could charge more. Um, and on the other hand, he's wrong. I mean, it's incredibly important, you know, this relationship that we have with the person who builds our home. And, and you know, are they, are they going to come back when things uh, break and, fi- and work on it until they're fixed? Um, and so – but I'll say that we've proven either one of those perspectives. We've proven that you can create value in brand. And But brand means a lot of things. Brand is not just – you know, I'm sitting here today telling, you know, you know saying that I'm going to manifest this house. Um, it is it is in what is the design of the house? You know, how is it put together? How have we put it out to the community? You know, what is our what is our responsibility after the sale? It's, it's, it's a, so brand means all of those things. So in those senses, I'm very happy that I built the brand. But another story that I learned 10 years down the, you know, later about when I first built a company, a friend of mine was telling me that I basically told them that I wanted to build a platform that was scalable. And over the past 10 years, we've built a platform. It's a real estate platform uh, that is always you know, demanding money for new projects, and it's, it's, a, it's a churn, right? Um, and it's not so scalable, right? So we can grow. We can do bigger projects in D.C. We're doing that. We have a great portfolio coming up, and we can grow regionally. But if you grow regionally, are you opening offices there and – why would I open an office in Richmond? I mean, is it because I want to make more money or because I want to change Richmond? If I want to change Richmond, how much time am I going to spend in Richmond? So you start going through these machinations. And so now comes scalability. So the future of our company is essentially building a lifestyle, a residential lifestyle brand around product and around you know, our expectations. I mean, you know, I know what I'm going to get when I go into an Apple store. I'm going to wait three hours. No, I mean, I know when I go to an Apple store, I'm going to have amazing design, amazing products, and ultimately when I finally meet with my Genius Bar expert, um, a really good experience. And so if we can do that across product type and, and across geography with all of these partnerships, I mean, this is where Ditto's headed. What what distinguishes a Ditto property from uh, another one? Because the way I think, I, I was looking at your design portfolio too, is that you have a lot of light-filled rooms, right? You use a lot of kind of minimalist or um, – kind of sparse interior architecture. Typically, the, the staircase um, is is 
almost middle. So it's just the treads, right? That are bolted in the it wall. It can be, yeah. Um, what what kind of things do you think create the signature for the Ditto brand? So specifically, you know, in a property, I think we've used. Um, I, I mean, I got to go back to the architects. I mean, the architecture is is is, is everything, right? And so for us, and, and design, right? So Ditto does all its own interiors. I, I'm the kind of master interior designer for the com- company. So there's no doorknob or no. Nothing, nothing, nothing that we don't approve and select internally, and you know, touch and feel, and then, and so, so that's become a huge. So design is, a, I think, is, the, is one of the biggest elements in what we've built, and you know, to date, right? And then going forward, we have the optionality to add other facets to that. Do you ever see yourself going into the custom build uh, phase where you're working with a client and working with an architect and helping kind of deliver what the client wants, or are you still kind of in this mode of? creating a property that has the Ditto uh, brand on it and right. then making that kind of your, your signature. We'll never be a third-party general contractor mm-hmm. or third-party builder for a custom person, right? I would develop a business where high net worth individuals came to me and said, I don't know what architect to choose. I don't know what builder to choose, but I want a $20 million house in West Virginia. Uh, I would do that. And, you know, the, the lucky thing, they would, what they would get through me is they would get access to top architects in the country who wouldn't do a single-family home for a buyer they didn't know. And then just kind of good decisions on how we can build this home and, you know, for a hell of a lot less. If you let, if you let a high-end single-family architect go have their way with a single-family home, it's going to come in fairly significantly above what it could for the same size house. So if you can have control over that and actually save money on design and still produce like really exceptional quality, that would be a lot of fun. But that's something you couldn't. I, that's something I could not do for the, for the coming years, right? Yeah. Because it takes it would take some of my time. That would be like a joy project for me. But I wouldn't get involved unless like it was you know worth my time from a personal significance standpoint. So let's talk about some of the places. So you've got one that's in progress right now. It's Florida Avenue over by Union Market. Yeah, so we have we have a the, the 301 Florida was designed as a uh, as a uh, mostly three bedroom, uh, multifamily building, a co living product with the so, retail on the ground floor. So you're doing mixed use now. Yeah, mixed use is is exciting to us. I think what's happened is people have divorced the retail from the multifamily. They've said they've said, well, we're gonna. I mean, in this in this ultimate quest for yield, they've separated the uh, the residential income streams from the from the retail income streams. And you do that because the cap rates are different, volatility, et cetera. So you can make more money ultimately when you sell a building. So people who are just um, uh, builders who are less concerned about like the long-term value of that building or long-term happiness of the residents will split that up. And so so we really want to continue to keep that together because we can make decisions to if, if everyone is in is in uh, is in the same uh, ultimate uh, waterfall and of, of cash flows, it's in everyone's best interest to raise the overall NOI of the building, net net net, of anything. I, I've seen a couple of the designs on your portfolio on the website, and I noticed that you had a number of places named Oslo. Um, so I take it that you're also influenced by Scandinavian modern design. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, sure. I, I am influenced by Northern European design for sure, and and and, and like the lifestyle in general and how how they approach. Um, how it puts their jobs and how they approach their housing, and I'm very fascinated by that. 
And I think that so, but Oslo itself is a different product from Ditto, the the first product we talked about, which is mm-hmm. the the for sale product. So we 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 essentially are a brand development company in many ways. We've developed two brands: uh, the strongest condo brand in DC and the largest and first uh, co living brand here in DC. Let's talk about co living. Co living. I think a lot of people are familiar with co working, which you know, if they're in the startup community, they've seen tons of co-working spaces open up in the last, you know, decade or so. Uh, What they might not be as knowledgeable about is co-living, which is taking that same concept and making it where people are co-locating and co-habitating in the same space, but creating kind of the work and life environment in the same area. Can you talk about how you're working in the co-living space and how you're bringing wellness into that? Sure. So when we started Oslo, it was about design. It was about uh, lifestyle, living and sharing community with other people and, uh, you know, about brand to the extent to which we could add value from the Ditto brand to Oslo. Um, and then as we've, as we've progressed and learned, we've, we've, we've begun to really add more community elements to it. But this, okay. is, this is the investigation we're going through right now. This is the, this is the product that we're coming out with this summer. Right, we're we're diving deep into everything that we know from these four operating uh, co-living buildings. We've learned from all of our mistakes, from all of our successes. You know, we've learned about designs and sizes and layouts, and so we're taking all of that. We we partnered with a uh, world-class strategy and design team, and uh, and we're coming out with my vision for what what our future will look like and how we will our products will be built and impact the communities that we're in. So you mentioned you're kind of investigating this right now. Um, like what, what are you using kind of as your template or, or, or model? Are you actually embedding like within co-living communities to see how people interact in those environments? Or is it just kind of studying, you know, what the cash flow is and, you know, potential benefits? I mean, how, how are you going about uh, replicating a co-living experience here in D.C.? So the firm that we're working with, uh, so we, we have our own experience with, you know, three, four, five, and six-bedroom apartments here in Washington, D.C. We have years of, of, of anecdotal and actual data of, of, of our renters and, and what's been good and what's been bad, right, all of that stuff. Um, and then our team is our team is a group of problem solvers. We're, we're a, a fun kind of geeky group of people <laughs> that, that likes to learn and likes to develop new things that – that have a uh, have a you know an impact. So um, I so and then add to that the fact that we're partnering with Aid Inc., who are some of the top thinkers in the world on the future of real estate. And I think that you know what we can come out with is going to be really exciting. Yeah, I, I think it's a fascinating concept. I've spoken to a couple of people about it. Um, I think what is interesting to me is it's kind of a spin on the old type of commune that you saw in the '60s. Maybe not on a farm, but you know in an urban environment where people sure. are in the same house. People have similar kind of attributes about them, like they might all be founders of startups and living in the same space sure. and finding that being in that kind of environment supports their being an entrepreneur. And then one thing I also heard, too, is that like the founders of WeWork, you know, uh, I think one of them started like he grew up in a kibitz mm-hmm. and that dramatically influenced how he saw community and work life. And what I think is interesting is is seeing, you know, how people are using kind of these models to build kind of the next concept of how we live in and interact with the world. Yeah. I, I think the way that I think about co-living is on a scale from like zero to kibitz. It's like the <laughs> okay. zero to kibitz scale, yeah. right? If like if, – if basically kibitz, you know, where you're sharing everything, it's as socialist as, as you can, you know, do on this earth, right? 
versus a, you know, XYZ apartment built by a boring developer, you know, over here, right? Has, you know, they, they hire branding marketing, branding and marketing company to, to make the apartment look cool. But ultimately, it's a, you know, it's a drywall box that you can live in, right? And so what's interesting is, and this is our invest, this is the investigation, this is the, the all of our of our machinations going into this is where do you want to fall on that scale, right? Sure. And you can have different products. Like if you have a product that's for you're building you're building in Israel, I mean you could be at ninety nine percent on the kibbutz scale, right? And if you're building in Mississippi, you might be at ten percent on the yeah, I'm from Mississippi, so I use Mississippi as a middle America example. You may be at the ten percent on the on the kibbutz scale, right? And so, and we and we might have different products, right? So, if it's a retirement living product that we're developing, then we want to be, I don't know, maybe just mid, you know, plus fifty percent on the kibbutz scale. And so, you just start to look at like how you can deliver wellness. How can we help bring, you know, things that made have made us feel good to help other people feel good? And that's that's kind of so we we just literally just do calculations and triangulations and. Where should we be? What's what's the most effective way to help people, to meet people where they are? I think it's interesting in the sense that, you know, you're seeing these communities pop up because what we're seeing right now in society is that people are feeling isolated living in cities. People have technology to connect them to pretty much anyone anyone and anywhere around the world, um, but they're feeling isolated from the cities that they live in. Um, can you talk to me about how design and kind of intentional design can help people with, you know, other facets of their life? And not feel like they're completely, you know, like you said, in a drywall box, separate. Sure. Yeah. I mean, people. A lot of times, when when I used to think about intentional design, I'll just say this: I was thinking about literally, like, how is the unit laid out? How is the the common areas, you know, situated? And I think that's important. But I think you know, to really create the community aspect, you've got to you have to think about like what is the what is the common belief of the people who are there. And so if you, you know, kind of sing from the mountaintops your story and your, your belief set, right, then, then you will attract people who are of, of similar interest, right? And that's not – and again, it comes down with, – what's wonderful, what I love about wellness is that it, cro- it cross, crosses all boundaries, right? Mm-hmm. I mean you can, you can have a conversation about wellness with someone for three hours before you find out that they make 300 percent more than you or, you know, 3 percent of you. And – that's that's something that's missing. I feel like, and for, at least in my life, that was missing. And so for me, it's such so much more of an authentic conversation than I can have with people. Martin Ditto, thanks so much for being here today. It was a great time. Thank you. We'll catch you next time here on DC Entrepreneur. Subscribe to this podcast via iTunes and connect with us on our blog, dcentrepreneur.com. If you have any tips or ideas for stories, please tweet at us or message us on Facebook. Please tune in to our next episode, and thanks for listening.